Welcome to the Museum of London and our lovely Plague Doctor um, for today's lunchtime lecture, um, Plague Bones, How London's Black Death Became a Tropical Disease. Um, there are some diseases that have had a profound effect upon us and the Black Death is, is one such disease that's had a lasting impact. And research into the Black Death and other diseases provide a fascinating insight into the past, learning about their mechanisms and the cause and effect on past populations. The Museum of London is very fortunate to actually curate over 17,000 archaeologically derived human skeletal remains that are direct linked to the past and have actually aided in uh, such research. In advances in technical sampling, they've actually been able to provide unique data about the Black Death itself. And these collections and other collections are an exceptional resource for Dr Reeves to be able to investigate and learn much more about diseases of the past and those affecting populations in the world today. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Carol Reeves, our lovely plague doctor, who is a medical historian at UCL and whose two areas of speciality are infectious disease and madness, and both of which will come together in today's talk. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and um, I hope you enjoyed our little performance, and I'm sorry that my hat fell off. <laughs> it's terribly hot in that mask. Um, okay, now the Black Death was a catastrophe for our medieval ancestors, killing up to half of some communities across Europe. In 1348, when it began, London's population was between 60,000 to 80,000, and a generation later, it was 40,000. Now today, I'm going to explore three things. I'm going to explore how the Black Death was understood by people who experienced it, and to present the most recent scientific evidence for what might have caused it, and to tell you about a project um, which we use the technology that, that, that we at UCL are doing, which we use the technology from a recent Black Death project 
to give us more information about another disease which caused great distress to some of our city-dwelling ancestors, and that's uh, marsh fever or agues. Now, the first thing to say about the Black Death is that nobody called it the Black Death in the 14th century. That term appears to have been first used in the 18th century. The words plague, pest, or pestilence were the most commonly used terms. And the second thing is not to lose sight of the human catastrophe. And that's why I like the Museum of London, because it has many domestic objects, and I've just chosen a few of them here, um, which might have been used by people who perished in these plagues. Because, of course, apart from the Black Death, London has experienced a number of plagues, including the Great Plague of 1665, which killed at least 100,000 of the city's residents. And if you read um, uh, extracts from Samuel Pepys's diary, uh, he'll tell you much more about it than I can. Now, one thing uh, we can say for certain about the Black Death is that it was an infectious disease. Nothing kills so rapidly and so vociferously uh, unless it is an infectious disease. And because it killed so rapidly and indiscriminately, we can assume that it was an emerging or re-emerging infectious disease. Uh, and that's one that is essentially new to the population it devastates and to which the population has little or no immunity. Now, this picture is actually captioned um, cleaning up after the plague. But if you look at the person that's cleaning up after the plague, you can see that she's wearing a crown. So she's hardly likely to be cleaning up after the plague. But I like to think that the whole baronial family in this residence has died and that the servants are wearing the crown jewels. So we understand the Black Death as an emerging infection, but how is it understood by the people living at the time? Well, together with war and famine, plague is one of the three arrows of God. And so for most citizens, rich and poor, it's the ultimate sign of God's displeasure uh, and power uh, at their sins. And the clergy certainly take this moral standpoint. But being in the front line and giving daily absolution to the dying, they are particularly badly affected by the plague. Up to 70% of the English clergy perish, along with one in three cardinals and three archbishops of Canterbury. And just a reminder here that uh, the clergy is, of course, under Rome's jurisdiction at this time. The Protestant Reformation is yet to happen. In Rome, meanwhile, the French Pope, Clement VI, asks the cream of the medical profession, which happens to be in Paris, to investigate the plague. And the top doctors conclude that the immediate cause is astrological. The conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter and Mars in the constellation of Aquarius in March 1345 has caused hot, moist conditions which forced the Earth to exhale a virulent sulfurous miasma, or in other words, an evil-smelling air. Now this sounds like an earthquake, and indeed, a powerful quake shakes Italy to the core in January 1348, 
immediately preceding the onset of plague. And this is very important. Most people accept that stinking poisonous vapours from any source, but particularly rotting refuse, sewers and stagnant pools, carry uh, disease that can enter the body either by bring, being breathed in or, or indirectly through the pores of the skin. Now, and this is a very good reason uh, not to immerse one's body in water, which only uh, enlarges the skin's pores and gives easier access to the bad air. Now, we do have a very nice medieval photograph of bar baths here, but as you're probably Im uh, imagining, baths uh, were not, at this time, uh, used for cleansing the body. They had a very, uh, had another, um, they had another reason for being, and that's they were really uh, baldy houses. The idea of things going off or putrefying, dying and stinking, and thereby causing disease, are very powerful in a culture where people live by their senses and much closer to the natural world in ways that later generations do not, and of course we don't. When the signs of plague uh, are first seen on humans, black spots, large gangrenous swellings called buboes under the arms, in the groin and the neck, a venomous fever, fetid breath, and sometimes blood vomiting, the idea of putrefaction seems horribly real. Putrefying plague bodies are believed to carry putrefaction to other bodies, and so the plague spreads with terrifying and relentless speed, sparing no one in its path and often killing its victims within three days. And where are the doctors? Well, in the 14th century, there are only a very few small number of elite physicians available to the wealthy. The range of practitioners and healers for everyone else includes barber surgeons, apothecaries, herbalists, midwives and monks. The plague doctors uh, of later centuries, their long beaks, these long beaks, were stuffed full of herbs, and fragrant spices uh, in order to ward off the evil airs. And they develop a range of treatments based on their understanding of the disease and their understanding of how the human body works. And as you can see from this picture, I'm actually, uh, my costume was uh, specifically chosen to match exactly uh, that, that image there. Um, I have to say that the hat doesn't really fit on top of the... It fitted me, but then, of course, when you put it on over the mask, it, it's not quite such a good fit. But this was a protective costume. Um, the other thing that plague doctors carried were these lovely fumigating torches, and they would be filled with an incense, and they would uh, be carried and lit in front of them to, or again, ward off the, um, to ward off the bad airs. And the, the things they did were bleeding, purging, sweating, blistering, cupping, to draw the poisons out of the body. Hope you like my picture of buttercups. 
Um, these are glass uh, cups. Sometimes they were bronze. Uh, and they would be heated in a fire, which you can see the fire over here, to extract the air, so you'd have to create a vacuum, and then stick them on the back of the bottom or wherever, and that would draw out the poisons. And cupping is still used in uh, Asian medicine, but for a slightly different purpose. Burning. Again, burning. Uh, these are cauteries, so that they would be again heated in a fire and you might burn off the buboes. Um, so burning or lancing the buboes is not only excruciatingly painful, as you can imagine, but tends to be a last resort, because once the buboes have appeared, the victim is generally considered to be doomed. And lancing buboes may indeed help spread the disease, because doctors who invest in a heavy-duty lancet like this one, used it on all their patients, one after the another. So you'd lance a bubo, wipe it on your a, a rag, onto the next one, wipe it on the rag, onto the next one. So we, we think that actually doctors were spreading plague rather than curing plague. But you have to remember, of course, that the concept of germs, let alone spreading them, is quite recent, and that only dates to the late 19th century. And if you can't afford to invest in a lancet, you might place a venomous creature, such as a frog, snake, scorpion or crab, on a bubo to draw out the plague poison. And for the squeamish patient, a reasonable alternative is a chicken's bottom, <laughs> on which salt is sprinkled to draw the poison. Uh, and for this to work, you have to hold the chicken's beak until it stops breathing and dies, hopefully before the patient does. Now, there's a story behind this image, because a couple of years ago, I set a competition in the Young Archaeologist magazine to design a historical public health poster, and this was one of the winning entries. And I have, think you have to say that it's a superb uh, public health poster, and uh, it's perfect for this, for this talk. One 17th century plague doctor with the very uh, interesting name of William Boghurst, whilst considering this to be a really superstitious rubbish, put forward his own remedy, which is to cut up a puppy dog live and to ply him warm to the chest. Uh, now you might wince, but it's probably better than snail tea. Perhaps it's not surprising that many people rely on charms rather than doctors. And in the city streets, fires are burned with oak and ashwood, fragranced with bunches of juniper and rosemary to cleanse the polluted air. You'll probably realise by now that the pressure of space for dead bodies during the Black Death soon became an issue and was solved by the creation of two large emergency cemeteries just beyond the city walls. One is at West Smithfield, and I've drawn the area roughly where that original cemetery was, and you can see that it's under Charterhouse Square uh, and the surrounding area. And the other one is this very smaller, much smaller, four-acre site uh, near the Tower of London. Uh, this is now Royal Mint Street, so uh, this is where the second burial site was. And these were emergency, um, emergency burial sites. 
Early this year, excavators constructing a cross-rail tunnel shaft at West Smithfield, that was the big, uh, that's the big cemetery around the corner in, under Charterhouse, discovered a, a dozen skeletons, and certainly these were victims of the Black Death, who represent a minuscule proportion of the estimated 17,000 bodies buried on this site. The, the other cemetery at East Smithfield, which held, held about 2,400 burials, uh, was excavated between eight, 1986 and 1988 by the Museum of London, and over 600 bodies were recovered. Now, despite this desperate need to dispose of bodies quickly, many were buried with dignity in wooden coffins and orientated east to west as required in the Christian tradition, and you can see that there. Um, those in burial pits were layered, often five deep, separated by a layer of earth. And in Florence during the Black Death, this was likened to making lasagna with layers of pasta and cheese. Now you'll never eat lasagna again without <laughs> thinking about the Black Death. Um, and, uh, but I have, and I'm always interested to think what happened to the people that were burying these people every day. I mean, what was their life expectancy? But being ordinary people, we never hear about them. We'll return to this excavation a bit later. But first, I want to fast forward to Plague's last great pandemic, which lasted from 1855 to 1914. And it killed about 10 million people, mostly in India, Hong Kong and China. And this is a rather sad looking makeshift hospital in Hong Kong in 1894. Uh, you can see that there's very little comfort for plague victims. Uh, probably most of whom would have died uh, and it, it's rather, I think it's rather sad. Um, and it's during this pandemic that the cause of plague is discovered in the 1890s and it is indeed an infectious disease caused by a bacterium, Yersinia pestis, which infects rodents and is transmitted to humans uh, by rodents' flea bites. By now, it's been renamed bubonic plague after the nasty buboes. And the black rat, Rattus Rattus, becomes the evil monster in the story. And plague is reframed as a tropical disease. Although the fear that it will return to Britain via its ports uh, does remain. And this, I think, is a, a very interesting image. It shows uh, Liverpool Port Sanitary staff. Now, uh, it looks as though they're, well, they're dunking rats and killing them uh, in that way. Uh, but what they're actually doing, because the rats are already dead. This is a rat, cave, a rat trap. They've missed that one, of course, but... Um, they're actually dunking dead rats in buckets of petrol to kill the fleas. So this is what was happening in England at the time, uh, and in London and, this, and in Liverpool. So people were, were very feared that this now tropical disease was going to come 
and attack everybody in England. The idea that it's no longer an English disease, it is now a tropical disease, and threaten, the tropics are threatened. Remember, we're a, still a colonial country at the time. So the idea is lost, in a way, that it was actually a disease which, if you like, originated or certainly came into England and you know, decimated populations. Many people at this time automatically assumed, of course, that all previous plagues were caused by the Yersinia pestis germ. But is this true? I mean, many historians say that we shouldn't actually be looking for, uh, for the cause of a disease in the past. We should be thinking about how it's contextualised in the past and, and ignoring, uh, a, a, in, a, in a way, a retrospective diagnosis. But in order to find out if we are dealing, uh, if we were dealing with Yersinia pestis at the time of the Black Death, let's return to our cemetery in East Smithfield. We don't know the name of this man, but he was young, aged between 18 and 25, and clearly had good teeth. About 12% of people buried at East Smithfield because that's where he came from, were in, this age, in his age group, and there were a, a, was a significantly greater proportion of men than women. I don't know why, really. I mean, we can speculate, but uh, we don't entirely know why. Now, we do know the name of this person. I think she's in the audience, but she probably isn't dressed like a 21st century plague doctor. Um, but here she is. And she's Dr. Sharon DeWitt, a biological anthropologist from the University of South Carolina. And Sharon is one of the most recent scientists to analyze the East Smithfield plague bones. And in 210, she and her colleagues extracted tooth pulp from the young man and subjected it to the most recent DNA recovery and analysis techniques. They were hoping to discover ancient uh, DNA, not of the young man himself, but of the Yersinia pestis bacteria they thought might be lurking in his molars. The difficulty of doing this, says Hendrik Poinar, one of the scientists on the project and to whom I am indebted for this slide, is like finding needles in a football field. And if you look at what you have to do, I mean, I'm not a scientist, so if you have got scientific questions, um, I'll try, but I might not be wonderful at it. Um, this, oh, I beg your pardon. Obviously, this is, this is the pathogen. This is the, say, this is the Yersinia pestis. This is what you're looking for. But you've got all these other contaminants. You've got bacteria in the soil. You've got fungal spores. You've got uh, human DNA. You, you've got a 600-year-old skeleton buried in the earth. So you've got to, if you like, filter out everything you don't want to find the thing that you do want. Uh, and it, some recent, this has been, this is, in a way, this is recent technology. Um, and a very recent technology, which was what was used in this project, was that they used DNA sequences from a modern plague strain as bait to fish out the ancient Yersinia pestis DNA. 
So they, they, they targeted, that's what they were looking for. And what did they find? Well, they did find ancient Yersinia pestis. And their findings suggest that the particular strain responsible for the Black Death probably emerged not long before the devastating pandemic began. All modern strains of the bacteria seem to have evolved from the Black Death strain. And as with, but as with all scientific discovery related to past populations, everything is up for debate and there are gaps to be filled. For example, new infections don't emerge in a vacuum. They are related, amongst other things, to changing ecosystems, climate and land use, urbanisation, travel, poverty, poor health, and coexisting human diseases. There were, for example, a series of famines in the early 14th century associated with unusually cold winters and wet summers. Ha ha, it's all happening again. Including the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317 in which there was great poverty and starvation. There's a suggestion too that Yersinia pestis, um, I beg your pardon, there was mass movement of troops returning from wars and skirmishes uh, in Asia and Europe and the opening up of silk roads to tra traders, travellers and villains, uh, <coughs> explorers, villains, crossing continents. And although the black rat has always plays, played the villain, Yersinia pestis uh, can infect other rodents such as marmots. So we're not specifically looking at the rat. So although the rat has had a bad press and, and you all know that the black rat spread the plague, it may not have been only the black rat, certainly in other parts of the world. There is a suggestion too that the human flea paid, played a role in spreading the plague so rapidly. And we know that most people, irrespective of social status, were infested with fleas, lice and intestinal parasites. Um, and here's a great image of, this is um, a medieval image uh, from a book on how to keep healthy to show that uh, uh, this is a de-fleeing brush uh, and, um, or de-lousing brush and this lady's obviously uh, cleaning her bed but she's lifted up her skirt and she's being bitten by a bed bug. So this is uh, very common and infestation with intestinal parasites was very common. And, so, and coexisting infection, infestations and infections such as tuberculosis may also have contributed to the high plague mortality rates. So we're looking at a number of, historians would pick up on a number of things that might be happening at the time. And now finally, let's return to our bad airs, or malarias as they were called in the ancient world. And you can immediately see the origin here of the word malaria. It simply means bad air. And malarias were the supposed cause not only of plague, but of recurring and intermittent fevers, which in Britain were called agues. And you can also see how the word ague can be got from plague. 
agues are very well described by doctors from the 17th to the 19th century and were particularly troublesome to people who lived in the marshy areas along the Thames from Westminster to Southwark and into the estuarine marshes of Kent and Essex. Here, the pestiferous vapours and fogs were believed to undermine the inhabitants' constitutions so severely that they were permanently ill and experienced higher death rates than those who lived on higher ground away from the bad marshy airs. And this is very well documented. In 1724, Daniel Defoe wrote a travel guide to the eastern counties of England in which he claimed that men who farmed in the fens and were acclimatised to its evil vapours uh, often sought upland wives who frequently died after two or three years of marriage. Some men, says Defoe, uh, had 10 or 15 wives during their own lifetimes. The, the reason that, they, that women didn't live in, in the fens themselves as much as men, farming the fens was a bit of a blokey thing to do. So single men would go, they, they might be ill, but the money was really good and the soil was really rich. So they, would, they, would just, they were chances. Uh, and, but in order to, uh, to find a wife, they needed to go upland. And these women were not immune to the... They hadn't developed a, an immunity to uh, these agues, so they did die. Um, and so uh, it is on record that uh, they did actually have a number of wives. But they were chronically ill, and, and the children were as well. And although there's no absolute proof that the ague described prior to the discovery of the malaria parasite really was malaria, um, we have much written evidence to suggest that it was. In addition, malaria is spread by a particular type of mosquito called the Anopheles and several varieties of which were found to transmit malaria after an outbreak on the Isle of Sheppey in Kent in 1919. And the Isle of Sheppey had previously been notorious for agues, and uh, I've called this Dad's Army Fights Malaria, uh, because this is a contingent of soldiers from the First World War who were actually sent out to help drain the marshes after this really quite serious outbreak of malaria. Uh, not just amongst soldiers returning from India and places where malaria was prevalent, but also uh, people who had never been out of England caught it as well. So they were went, went out to, to drain the marshes. And when publicity for this talk was being tweeted, we received an email from a New Zealand surgeon who'd worked at Westminster Hospital in the early 1960s. And he recalled being told about a malaria researcher who was importing Anopheles mosquitoes at considerable cost from Asia until a new lab technician stated that he could supply them much cheaper. So he collected them from the marshes to the east of London. So they're there, waiting for us. Agues didn't decimate entire communities in the manner of plagues, so we're unlikely to find an ague burial site. But over the past few years, I've been trawling 18th century archives 
searching for individuals who lived in areas defined as aguish and who wrote good personal accounts of their ague fevers. And this is not as straightforward as it sounds because there are very few historical accounts of personal illness and even fewer doctors' case records describing them. But people who do leave records are the clergy. So we're coming back now, full circle to the clergy. And as with plagues, they were often badly affected by agues because they went into parishes as parish priests uh, in parishes where, which were new to them and they, didn't, uh, they weren't acclimatised to the, the agues. And they were often badly affected by them. And parish priests were also, many of them, buried within their churches usually in triple-lined coffins of wood-led wood. So preservation is theoretically as good as it gets. And I hope in the near future to be able to show that this other English pestilence, marsh fever, was actually malaria. Now also one of the great scourges of the developing world. And I... In the process, I want to thank all of the people who have made this research, not only for the Black Death possible, but for my AGUES project. Um, and now, if, if anybody would like to ask questions, I'm happy to, uh, to be here for you. Do I have any questions? I think we've got a roving microphone, so... Um, have you got any views on um, the sweating sickness of the Tudors? Was that connected to either uh, do We don't know. The sweating sickness seems to have come and gone, and it's, it's very difficult to... Uh, to, to, to we don't know. I mean, it, it, it's one of those very unusual conditions that seems to have come and disappeared and nobody's really uh, come up with what it might have been. I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of theories about the sweating sickness, but uh, from a, a food poisoning to anthrax to... But, but nobody knows, and it seemed to disappear. But this is what happens with infections. I mean, we, we know that the Black Death was an emerging disease, but we've had hundreds of emerging diseases. Obviously, HIV AIDS is an emerging disease. That really surfaced in the 1980s, although probably it was around before, but we didn't recognise it. Um, so emerging diseases are happening all the time. So it could have been... An, it could have been a, an emerging disease and it, and it went. We don't know. No, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question, I'm afraid. That's an, um, so, somebody, did you have a... Yes. Um, oh, one... Is this working? Oh, at one stage it was suggested that um, it wasn't actually from the fleas on the rats and that it was something akin to Ebola and uh, even AIDS. 
um, what what kind of well I mean the thing is that they've that the, the yes but they've found the Yersinia pestis um, bacterium so so you can rule out Ebola I think again you know um, Ebola is a is a modern emerging disease I mean it we don't know how old these diseases are. Or you see, some infections re-emerge because obviously the the, the, the bacteria and the virus evolves. Um, you know, and they can evolve much faster than we can because they're reproducing very quickly. Um, but I think having found the Yersinia pestis bacterium, uh, yes, I mean you can say now it's almost certain that this. That, that explains the Black Death. But nothing's cast in stone, you know. I mean, historians are always a bit sceptical of everything, and that's what we're paid to do. And if we don't make it up, you know, we lose our jobs. <laughs> so, uh, so we try and, you know, we try and uh, reconstruct uh, what's going on. But I think, it, I think if anybody's, if, if Sharon's here, she'll want to tell you that it's definitely a synopestis. <laughs> we spoke earlier this morning on the telephone, Dr. Landsman. Okay. Uh, uh, between the 1300th and the phase in 1600, in today's phrase, were any lessons learnt about treatment? Also, I can't really accept that they found bacteria in the dental pulp because that was formed between the ages of 6 and 20. And I can't see how bacteria could have got within the pulp. Then finally, in my clinical years, I spent time at St Pancras Hospital overlooking a park that was a site when the railway to St Pancras was built, they discovered a plague pit at that park. Also, some Napoleonic prisoners of war were buried there. Uh, okay, so let me take the first question. What was the first question again? Was there any lessons learned between 1300 and 1600? Uh, well, uh, N not specifically. Um, th the idea that that, that any disease was um, th th the idea of how the body worked was based on humoral theory, uh, which was that the healthy body had to flow. So the idea that you needed to remove uh, the toxins or the bad humours from the body by purging, bleeding. Um, or cupping, that, that would have been a 13th century. That goes right back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, and so that uh, would definitely have been still the same type of treatment uh, up until uh, the, the plague of uh, the 17th century and indeed well into the 18th century. So the, the idea of how the body worked didn't change. And so the treatments themselves didn't change. Uh, uh, th th this mask was worn more by doctors in the later plagues than in the uh, Black Death. I mean, I think only the Italian doctors in the Black Death era, or era wore the mask. Um, as far as, what was your second question? Oh yeah, you couldn't accept the dental pub. Um, well, I'm, all I can say is that the that when your body's infected with um, with any bacterial parasite, it goes everywhere, uh, and so it doesn't matter what age you are. I mean that, uh, and we de we definitely use dental 
we do extract, and in fact, you get very rich uh, material from dental pulp, pulp as you do from the sternum. And there are certain bones that when you're taking samples for analysis, for DNA, ancient DNA analysis, you would use certain bones which are very rich in marrow and rich in, you know, th this is where the, these bacteria sit. Uh, so I think that's, that's quite widely accepted by bioarchaeologists. Uh, and there are experts here who are better placed than me to say that. Um, and yes, I mean, there, ha there are plague pits all over London. Um, but, you know, people haven't necessarily worked on all of them. Uh, but yes, I mean, I mean, there was a time, I don't know, obviously Yelena will uh, correct me, but there was a time, certainly, when every single uh, body or skeletal remain which was... Um, excavated in London, building the undergrounds, etc., came into, uh, into the Museum of London. So there's material, you know, on which uh, these, this research can be made. But I don't know whether any bodies from your, that particular play pit came in. But you do have to work on the right remains. I mean, not everything that you excavate or exhume is suitable for research because it might just be too badly damaged and in certain parts of the country this is my problem with my malaria because most of my victims are in Essex and Kent but the soil is very uh, acidic and so if you try to exhume a body in the soil from an ordinary grave site you won't you'll very rarely get anything useful from those skeletal remains because they're too damaged, which is the reason that I'm looking at vicars, or parish priests, not just because they left records and I have to have archival records of agues because I can't just go and dig up a body and, you know, and do some research. There has to be a reason. You have to make, it's very hard to, to do that. You have to have a very good case uh, and it has to go through a lot of procedure. So I'm looking at, people who were buried within churches because I know that I get the best possible uh, you know, pre preservation that I can because if you're buried intramurally within, you know, within a church you have to be in a triple lined coffin that, that's, that was the law so it has to be wood, lead, wood um, so you can't get you can't get evidence from anything it has to be absolutely right um, yes. Oh, sorry. Talking of plague pits, um, when I was a child, I was told that um, a patch of land in or by Hampstead Parish Church was an old plague pit, and it couldn't be developed because if you dug it up, you would release all these plague germs. How much truth is yes. there in that? Well, I think everybody who, um, th theoretic, um, yeah, I, I guess that is, you, theoretically you could, but, um, but people who do work, uh, you saw that costume that um, Sharon was wearing. If you do work on material which is potentially pathogenic, uh, you, do, you do have to be very well protected. Um, Can I say something about Yes, that? Sharon. So I, I'm the woman in that horrible outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually wearing that because I was taking samples and I didn't want to contaminate the samples. Okay. <laughs> when, I'm doing, when I'm doing osteological work, 
I don't wear anything except for gloves so that I can get to the bathroom more quickly. <laughs> okay. I, and I've been working on black infections for 10 years. And I'm alive. <laughs> so, so you don't worry, Sharon. I'm not worried whatsoever. The DNA is the DNA itself is degraded, so there's certainly no functional viable bacteria themselves. Okay. So everyone should rest easy. <laughs> Get someone to excavate it and then call me. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a course. Um, and Yelena, bless her, uh, taught me on. I did a three-month bioarchaeological course here. And uh, we 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 rearticulated skeletons, and we just did it. I mean, you know, and I'm still alive, and Yelena's still alive. I guess I guess there isn't. Yeah, I guess people aren't worried about that. I mean, if you work in a hospital, you're working amongst bacteria and viruses all day. Um, so. I'm afraid that's what we've got time for now, um, oh. but we'll say thank you very much again to Carol um, for her talk. Thank you.